Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. I know you turn to me and this, your podcast playing app, to find out the day of the week. I might suggest not the most efficient way, but I'll be honest with you. It is Saturday. Or I'll honestly divulge that. I don't know what day you're listening to this. Anyway, on Saturday and the Saturday show, we pull one from the vaults and one from the past week and just offer them these interviews or segments up to you for your delectation. The one from the week was the sad, tragic spectacle of Kanye West. And in my opinion, and as I express in a spiel from Tuesday, how mental illness really explains, not excuses, but explains almost all of the recent rants that he's been engaged in. And then we talk to Ash Carter. This was an interview from 2019 when the former Secretary of Defense came out with a memoir. Ash Carter is a very important man. He held more positions than just that, as you will hear. He died this week a bit unexpectedly. I really enjoyed my conversation. And I think at the end, I asked him a question out of the blue, which you might not understand, but he was a scholar of St. Dennis. He's an interesting guy with an eclectic life. And I introduced to him, and I hope to you, a word that will almost never come in handy, but that was, you know, you'll hear. He was kind of delighted to learn. Okay, Kanye West and Ash Carter up next. Ash Carter was the 25th Secretary of Defense in the Modern Defense Department. He was President Barack Obama's final sec def, as they say. His memoir is called Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. Can I still call you Secretary Carter? Welcome. Yes. yes. Uh, don't call it a memoir, though. No, if you don't mind. it's not. It's very, much, um, <laughs> it's very much a book about a workplace. And how that workplace works. Yep. Largest institution in the world. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was thinking I have read dozens to hundreds of books written by former military. I've read a couple written by former secretaries of defense, and they always start the same way with a firefight. I'm pinned down in Quezon. I'm monitoring a raid in Tora Bora. And yours starts with procurement, the procurement (laughs) of the uh, joint strike fighter 12 pages in bunny van venlet makes it right yes, yes. She's, so the point that you're writing about bunny van venlet is that her husband was an officer who you wanted and you had to convince him and his wife not to retire to florida so you could procure this aircraft but it's telling to me that that's what you wanted to emphasize because i guess we the public don't realize how much of the job that is well i wanted somebody who picked it up to realize this wasn't your typical Washington memoir that would either start with a firefight, as you said, 
or with I was born in Philadelphia, yes. you know. Or uh, maybe even a firefight on off the Senate floor, that sort of firefight. Uh, yes, yes. yes. Like or a yeah. kiss and tell. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. wouldn't believe what the, this president or that president did. This is a book about how to run the largest institution because I was the number three guy, then the number two guy, and the number one guy. So I'd been in every corner. Had anyone done and, that before? And one guy who was Bill Perry, who was... Bill Clinton, Secretary of yeah. Defense, yeah. had occupied those three roles before. No one else had been in He was an corner, excellent Secretary of corner. Defense, and you uh, worked with him closely. I, he, he was stood in for my father at my wedding. That's there how close I am to Bill. And I, I have been to a number of former Secretaries of Defense, Jim Schlesinger, Bob Gates, mm-hmm. all good friends as well as predecessors. But the, the reason to start the book inside the five-sided box with procurement is just most people know that about $700 billion of their money is spent by the Pentagon. They have an image, many of them, that some of it's wasted, mm-hmm. maybe even some that lots of it's wasted. Right, right. Toilet seats and, and hammers yeah, and sure. these so high-ticket items. So I take them to a, a place, a corner of the Pentagon they've never been, which is the corner where we buy stuff, and I was the so-called acquisition czar. And I thought that was as good as any as a place to give them an idea of what the book was about. And to their credit, my publisher said, that's fine, because a lot of people, once they start read it, Mike, have the same response, which is, geez, I didn't know that's how it worked. That's kind of interesting. Well, it's clear from reading the book that you are driven by issues of order and efficiency. Um, You talk, you compliment Barack Obama as being not only a smart person, but the phrase you use is an orderly thinker. And I had never thought about that before as a quality to have in a leader and especially a president. But now I realize it's, it's pretty important. And I was wondering if of the current crop of candidates, some of whom you know well, some of whom have blurbed your book, do you think any of them are orderly thinkers or do you worry about the orderliness of any of the thinking? Yeah, you may think orderliness is not a very high human attribute, but when it comes to matters of war and peace and life and death, and at that level where you live in such a swirl, the ability to keep your head straight, and I did admire that in Barack Obama, and We as a department crave clarity and consistency. And one of the things I found as Secretary of Defense, I've had very little difficulty getting people to do what I told them to do. Mm -hmm. They needed to have that clarity and consistency. And when I could reflect the president's clarity and consistency, that was a, a very good thing to do. The people running today, so let's just think about them, most people who have a purely legislative background Mm -hmm. need to learn to be an executive. That doesn't come naturally. And Mm -hmm. I've served with some legislators who have struggled with the managerial dimensions of executive roles. Barack Obama did a pretty good job of making the transition. Maybe that was just because he was in the Senate for a short time. (laughs) It didn't get to him Um, Others have had no major executive responsibility at all, like the current president or even any public service responsibility. So we've had quite a variety in our history. But we in that now large and obviously almost all democratic field that you're talking about, there are a few mayors 
and governors, and they're the people, if you think back in history, who find it easiest to yes. make that transition because their job is the most like the president's. Now, on the current president, you write in the book, I couldn't accept a job offer from someone like President Trump. By no means do I disagree with all his policies, but there would be a major difference on important issues like Russia and the Middle East and alliances. Most importantly, I couldn't support Decisions about defense made on sudden impulse, and you write, and this is important for people to hear, above all, I could not support an administration characterized by repeated acts of offensive behavior like those I would fire an officer for committing racist remarks, hateful and divisive speech, casual references to sexual assault and adultery, and so on. Here is my question. Jim Mattis, who you write about and slept next to on transcontinental flights yeah. on Bill Perry's plane, you obviously hold him in high regard, he came to a different conclusion beyond the respect you have for him and the collegiality, are you glad that he did, that someone decided to become the adult in the room? Well, yeah, I'm grateful to Jim. He's an old friend of mine, and I think he served honorably in very different, difficult circumstances. He himself came to the conclusion, the same conclusion I report in yeah. the book, and he says so in his letter of resignation. What I was saying there in the book is it is a myth that if the president of the United States calls you and offers you a job, that the only answer to give is yes. You have two reasons to take a job. One is to help the president, and you must take it with the belief that you're going to actually be helpful to the president. Mm -hmm. If you take it with the belief that all you're doing is checking the president or thwarting the president or you're reasonably can reasonably expect to immediately come into conflict with the president, you're not helping him by taking that job. Secondly, you have to live with yourself and your own principles and your sense of what's good for America. And in both of those cases, I, I don't see how with this president, I've met him a few times, I don't know him well, but just looking from the outside in at the environment, I don't see, how, and Jim's experience, how to be effective in helping him be a good president or a better president. And I certainly, as I said in the book, some of the things that are now talked about every day in Washington as though everybody does them or it's okay are not okay with me. Right. And I, they're not going to be okay in my military. Could I ask you, though, when you took your oath at, to be Secretary of Defense, was the oath to uh, the Constitution yes. and the country? Yes. Did, was the president mentioned? Yes. You have an obligation to carry out the president's lawful orders. Mm -hmm. But you're the you're first when you raise your hand, it is to the Constitution of the United States. And to a defeat, by the way, all enemies ex foreign and domestic. Yes, yes. And when I was the when I was the top money spender, I always used to remember the domestic part. Yeah, Lockheed. <laughs> um but I guess my question is maybe Jim Mattis or some of the others looked at it. Similarly, as you did, but said that there there were competing valences, there were competing considerations, and perhaps they said that my job. You're right. I can't really help the president that much carry out his agenda, but what I can do is help the country by keeping the president from hurting the country. Uh, I would think there might be legitimacy. That's a to respectable that. point of view. I don't share it because okay. it's doomed to end. Yeah, it is not being an ingenuous with the president of the United States. So if you know you're going to end up in opposition 
and he's saying, will you come and help me? And mm-hmm. you know you're not coming in to help him. That's something I, I I would think is dishonest. Now, Jim's not dishonest. He just didn't know. None of us knew what Donald Trump would be like as president, as he himself says. So it's no fault to Jim. And Jim obviously eventually came to the view that it, it he wasn't. And that's what his letter says, that their views were and their styles were just too far apart. And I'm more with Jim's views and more and style yeah. myself. So, oh, geez, where to start? I'll start with this. A defense that was uh, articulated for Donald Trump's policy, if you want to call it that, and I'll quote Senator Rand Paul, is that there are only 50 troops left. And at that point, there's no way that 50 troops can thwart the Turkish army rolling in. What's your assessment of that defense? Well, we we only had, it was 50 special forces, actually, people back in 2015, when it all started, Mm -hmm. who found, for me, the Syrian Kurds and that they were willing to be our infantry in a march on Raqqa. Remember, Raqqa was the so-called capital of the, of the so-called caliphate, caliphate yeah. of ISIS. And Mike, you remember 2015, there were attacks in Paris, these maniacs shooting people, running over people in Florida, detonating bombs at the Boston a marathon. You mm-hmm. can't have that stuff. I'm right. supposed to protect you. I'm your secretary of defense. And so these guys needed to be destroyed. And they needed to be destroyed in Syria as well as in Iraq, in Mosul in Iraq, Raqqa in Syria, and everywhere in between. And we could do it ourselves, but we found these Kurds who were willing to fight for us if only we'd advise them and bring down the great tornado of our might in support of them, our intelligence, our firepower, our logistics, our advising, and supercharge them, they would get rid of ISIS. And they did. And we're a lot safer for it. Now, if we walk away from them and ISIS comes back, which it will, they're not all dead, unfortunately, And uh, so some of them are being detained and some of them are still further down the Euphrates Valley. So it wasn't completely over yet. ISIS will come back and we're going to have to do it all over again, Mike, to protect ourselves. And next time, nobody will go with us because we don't stick with them. Right. Alliances help us, it turns out, as well as, you know, it's not just generosity. Do you think Turkey's ongoing membership of NATO is something we can or should question? Well, we should certainly question it. We've been questioning it from the very beginning because here's this Asian, now Middle Eastern country in a what has been a European alliance. But during the Soviet Union, we thought they had a important piece of real estate, which is right between the Soviet Union and the Middle East. Yeah. We had a friend. Yeah. And that seemed like a good thing to have. And so we, and they wanted to be part of NATO and they wanted to be part of the West. Now we have Erdogan and I've dealt with Erdogan. Um, he, his original wound, which has made him so erratic and hostile toward the West was really with the EU when Turkey was not admitted to the European Union. That was an insult from which Erdogan has not recovered. It it spread to NATO, which is not the European Union. It is a military arm that has the United States in it. Mm -hmm. And we we began to have trouble with the Turkish 
with Turkey in the context of the alliance, which we'd never had in the past. And that came from Erdogan. Now Erdogan behaves very erratically. He acts as though he's going to come in and change things in Syria. I don't think he will. He acts as if he may throw over the United States as his best friend and pick up Russia. Really? Russia? And I I said that to the Turks. I'd always say, you're going to go buy their stuff. You know our stuff is better. Mm-hmm. You're going to count on them when you know you can count on us better and To that extent, I didn't think that they really had a card to play there. But he is calling, he, Erdogan, is calling into question the orientation of Turkey toward the Western camp. That's not good for us because we're part of the Western camp. At the same time, I can't stop him from doing it. We need to stand strong for the things that we need to do to to defend ourselves. But it's not a good development. And it's all Erdogan. Ash Carter, Secretary of Defense, author of Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. I learned more about procurement of air tankers than I ever thought I wanted to know. And procurement of dogs. If you like dogs, that's in there, too. It's a really fascinating book. And thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me, Mike. And because I learned so much, I want to perhaps teach you something. Do you know what a cephalophore is? No, I should. You shouldn't. I don't know if you should. Maybe you should. A cephalophore is a figure who bears his own head, a figure who carries his own head. All right. I get the etymology. Right. And the reason I found out about this was I was looking up the life of St. Dennis, Uh who you studied, a notable cephalophore. (laughs) So there you go. And I also found out that the artists, the sculptors who depict mostly saints who carry their own heads have a conundrum where to put the halo. Do you put it on the head or above where the head was? So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Very good. I hadn't thought above the stump or above yeah, the tough. arm. It's a tough I, call. I, I, yeah, I know it is. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's no right answer, I guess. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Kanye West has been dropped by major sponsors, Balenciaga, and now Adidas, as well as his agency, CAA. Kanye, who wants to be called yay, but also wants a lot of things I don't want to give him, has engaged in a series of interviews and public statements, beginning with his endorsement of the White Lives Matter slogan, defending that as just truth-telling, irrespective of the fact that the slogan has been adopted by white supremacists. As if nothing could be closer to the truth, West then engaged in a series of interviews in which he laid out his anti-Semitic theories for whoever asked or didn't. Everyone wants to shoot the, shoot the messenger. And you look at how your point was going to start. You have to understand. But the thing is, the Jewish people that I'm talking about don't have to understand. And that is that privilege that I'm not going to allow. So the question is, what motivated Kanye or Ye or decidedly, in fact, not at all Ye? West has mental illness. He's been open about his struggles with bipolar disorder, but this has been rejected by some as an explanation for his latest behavior. Uche Blackstock, an MSNBC contributor and doctor, tweeted a week ago, I need as many psychiatrists as possible on this bird app, meaning Twitter, to make it clear that Kanye's anti-blackness has nothing to do with his bipolar disorder. Actor Josh Gad, no snowflake, though a snowman, posted about his grandparents' experience as Holocaust 
Holocaust survivors and concluded, I'm going to make this super clear, Kanye West is a raging fucking anti-Semite. His mental illness is not an excuse for his neo-Nazi propaganda. No, it's not. But it is an explanation. Do I think, without mental illness, that Kanye West would be saying all these things? I do not. Absent his condition, which includes manic episodes during bipolarity, Kanye West would not be spewing this hateful garbage. He would not be saying it. He would be thinking it, however. That is true, I do believe. And that's not good. But one of the things that mental illness can rob people of is a filter. And it also robs people of discernment. A lot of us have thoughts or entertain notions, and then, if we can apply rationality, can reject these notions. Kanye West is not benefiting from that process. It's a very human process. None of this means that a perfectly healthy Kanye West wouldn't also harbor hate deep within him. But it might be, under that hypothetical, so deep that he'd know how to deal with it, either by not mentioning it or by not crediting it. He might not think it. He might not believe it. At the very least, he would not say it. What's better? One question goes, knowing what he thinks or not knowing. This is the mask is off theory that says, well, at least we know where Kanye stands. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's better that we know Kanye's quote-unquote true self, because one, more hate talk in the world isn't good. Two, gives license to others to engage in their hateful conduct. Three, it's not a true reflection of West absent the wages of mental illness. And four, I think we already pay too much attention to Kanye West. I think so. Healthy Kanye, that guy is a great hip-hop artist, but not the public intellectual that America needs. That, of course, is Megan Thee Stallion. And that's it for the Saturday show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson. And we will talk to you on Monday. One last uh, piece of critical information uh, that may have tipped the scales uh, in, in me wanting to promote Ash. Uh, Ash is a big Motown fan. Uh, and one of his favorites is a classic by the Four Tops, uh, Reach Out, I'll Be There. Uh, so, Ash, I'm reaching out to you. 